Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we have a great interview with Chris Smith, who is a Disney historian and author. He's written numerous books, including The Walt Disney World That Never Was and Backstories and Magical Secrets of Walt Disney World Volumes 1 and 2. We had a great time talking to Chris. We get into a lot of the unbuilt Disney attractions, like different world showcase pavilions, like the Russia Pavilion and Fire Mountain. Um, we also kind of talk about some hidden secrets um, of some of your favorites, like like Pico's Bills. And Chris goes into a deep dive into the attic scene at the Haunted Mansion. Uh, definitely make sure you listen for that. It, it, it was This whole interview, I think, was worth it just for kind of those details on the Haunted Mansion. The amount of details that he had on that and the amount that he's been able to look into this ride is incredible. So it was very enlightening. Definitely. And we are not going to talk about Disney news in this episode because this week the major news was the Disney Investor Day and just the ton of content they announced for Disney+. Plus. So because there was so much to cover, we actually released it as a separate episode this week. So if you want to hear all of that, you can check out that episode as well where we, we take a deep dive into everything new that's going to be coming out to Disney+, Plus and in theaters over the next couple of years. So be sure to check that out and enjoy our interview with Chris. So we are happy to be joined on the podcast this week by author Christopher Smith, who has written uh, multiple books on Disney, including The Backstories and Magical Secrets of Walt Disney World, Volumes 1 and 2, and The Walt Disney World That Never Was. Chris, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be on and uh, looking forward to talking about some, some really cool Disney stuff tonight. Now, before we get into the cool Disney stuff, I do have to ask you about your backstory because you are a practicing attorney. So <laughs> what got you into becoming a Disney historian as well? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting. It, it really starts, you know, long before I was an attorney, I was a child who, you know, grew up <laughs> loving, you know, loving the Disney Channel. I was a Disney Channel kid. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm 43. And so, you know, when I was, you know, between five and 10, that's when the Disney Channel was kind of just really getting going and just, you know, fell in love with Disney then. But really what changed it all was my first trip to to Disney World, Walt Disney World, uh, when I was seven. And let me just tell you, for, for a kid who had kind of been living, you know, through his imagination, being able to step inside a world where that stuff became real – it just it just completely changed you know changed my outlook on life hopefully for the better since then um, and and like a lot of us you know you know I think we all start loving the Disney parks because of the parks themselves but over time for a lot of us including the two of you I'm sure it becomes more than that and so you start wanting to learn more about the Disney company and learn more about the parks and that just really kind of started a passion for me and 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 people often ask me well what does it take to be a Disney historian and I say well I don't really know but uh, you know <laughs> for me it's just immersing myself in as many of, of these different stories and as much information about the parks as I possibly can and what's great is after almost 50 years in operation there are absolutely some fantastic stories uh, about a lot of different topics uh, that cover the Disney parks that's a good point that's one thing we've talked a lot on the podcast is that if you're a, a casual fan and you maybe go to the parks you know once every few years I mean th there's definitely a lot to do there but 
as you, like you said, as you grow into it and you get more involved, there's like different levels you can kind of yeah. get into. And there's something for everyone, essentially. I mean, like you said, I mean, you can go back and, and research 50 years of history if you want to, or, you know, there's even behind the scenes tours and different things that there's just really something for every level of fandom that you can think of at the parks. You know, th- th- there really is. And, and what's interesting is, is, is I tell people a lot that, you know, I'm a fan of amusement parks in general, right? You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I love Six Flags. I love Cedar Point. I love when the local fair comes to town. I, I love all those things. <laughs> but, but I think we can all agree that Disney is different from those things, right? Yes. You know, Disney just, mm-hmm. it's a different experience. And I think part of the reason it is different is all this detail and all these stories and all these wonderful, fun things that a lot of people completely miss and still have a good time. But once you do start kind of peeling back the layers of the onion and start learning these fun things, these fun details, it just makes your experience that much uh, better. And, you know, and it makes you like me and you want to go back and back over and over again. And what, what's funny for me too is, is, you know, as you know, I've written a, you know, I've started a series on backstories and secrets for the parks. You know, so I've made it a point to try to find as many of these as I possibly can. And I think I've done as definitive a job as anybody, but every new trip I take to the parks, I always see something new. Now, part of that is is change and things evolve, but a lot of it is just, there's just so much detail. There's no way that any one person can know it all or do it all or or experience it all. And that for me, that makes it uh, uh you know just even more fun. Yeah. How long have you been researching Disney? I mean, when when did you really start this kind of passion project of diving into the history and starting to write these books? You know, that, that that's a fun question. It's actually you know two different answers. I, yeah, I kind of started you know really you know, studying a lot about the the parks above and beyond just, you know, hey, what's a cool fact I can know probably a decade ago. And it was because of that, because of that kind of reading and, you know, reading old annual reports of the Disney company and reading old marketing materials (laughs) and things like that, where I actually got the idea to write my first book, The Walt Disney World That Never Was. Because what I discovered in a lot of those old materials, you know, these, these drawings and these concepts for Things like Thunder Mesa and things like, you know, uh, uh, an Israel Pavilion and, and, and World Showcase uh, that I knew never came to be. And so I'll, I have a history background. That's what my, my undergraduate degree is in. And so I was like, you know what? I really want to try to find out more about this. And I started digging and digging. And what was great was was the stories that I found through that research process you know, the concepts themselves are cool, right? A, a Thunder Mesa or, mm-hmm. you know, all these attractions didn't happen. But the stories as to why they never got implemented into the parks were actually stories about the Disney company itself and the company's response to things like economic pressures and, you know, disasters and internal imagineering creative disputes. And I just thought, man, these are really cool topics. I've seen kind of bits and pieces mentioned in different places, but I've never seen a, a kind of a definitive source, a book that covers them. And based on that, kind of took a leap of faith to, to write the book. And thankfully, you know, it got a, a, a just, just an overwhelmingly positive reception. And with that, I thought, well, hey, that's all the excuse I need to kind of turn this hobby into something a little more serious and to justify more trips to Walt Disney World. Uh, and, and more and more books have certainly followed after that. Well, that's 100% what we're always trying to do, just justify more trips to Disney. <laughs> well, and for you too, I'm sure you I'm sure you both feel this way. It's also extremely rewarding to to kind of be able to share things about Disney like you do with your podcast 
to others and to get, you know, positive feedback about that, right? It, it yeah, just makes it yeah. all the more worthwhile to, to be able to share things with, with, with other Disney fans who are like us and love the parks and get a positive reception in return. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's, there's this notion that, you know, Disney's for kids. I think it's going away somewhat now, but there really is a, a thriving community yeah. of people that love Disney from like a wide range of backgrounds and, and age groups and everything that it really has, even in the probably the past decade or so, I mean, just become this overwhelming cultural phenomenon. And I'm not sure if it's all the acquisitions or anything, you know, with, with Marvel and Star Wars, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's just, there's so much there now that you can really connect with people um, through that common love of Disney. And it really is interesting to, to kind of meet with people, you know, talk with people like yourself that have written books about Disney and just see all the different perspectives people have on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there really is something for everyone. And, and, and I tell people too, I, you know, I get asked a lot of quiz questions and, and, and ask me advice about the parks. And I tell people, you know, don't get overwhelmed. You know, it's not like you need to know every single detail about the parks to be able to, to enjoy them. I mean, thousands of people every day are in the parks who know nothing about, you know, secrets or backstories or what could have been or, or things like that. And they enjoy the parks. But the more you do know, it just makes it that much more fun. And, and, and to your point, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter what your background is, I think the Disney parks offer something for everyone. All right, so let's get into some of some of this, um, you know, unbuilt attractions and backstories and things. Um, one section in your book is all about Epcot and the World Showcase, and I'd love to get into that because I, I don't think uh, people really know a lot about that there's unbuilt countries or, or that there are other plans for the World Showcase. So can you you mentioned the Israel Pavilion um, already? So can you maybe you know talk about some of that? What are what were some of the maybe other countries that have been considered and, and were unbuilt? Sure. And, and, and I'm glad you asked that because World Showcase for me, you know, it's, one, it's one of my favorite parts of the Disney parks today. Spend a lot of time there and, and, and enjoy it a lot. Uh, but from a historical perspective, it really is one of the most fascinating areas as well. And I'll, I'll give you a fun example in terms of how, you know, you can visit the parks many times, but not pick up on things that are right in front of you. I had, you know, before I started researching the book, I'd been to World Showcase countless times, walked around, visited all the countries, been all the restaurants, you know, multiple times. But until I started doing research, I had not noticed that between each of the existing countries that are there now, you know, with some exceptions, but there are these huge plots of open land. I thought in my mind Mm -hmm. that one country ended and another began. But if you pay attention, Mm -hmm. that is not the case. Most have these big, these big open areas. Um, And the reason for that is, you know, Disney planned for there to be a a lot more World Showcase pavilions than what we got uh, when it first opened in 1982, uh, which was nine. And then the 11 that we have there now, a lot of different countries were, were, were planned. And it's really fascinating to think about a couple of the big ones, Equatorial Africa. Right. So between oh, the wow, area okay. that's kind of the, the outpost area today between, you know, where China and when you kind of start you know, looping around the corner, there's this big open area uh, from the very beginning. Right. You know, so if you went to Epcot on opening day, you would have seen a large billboard that said Equatorial Africa coming you know, next year. And what was a couple of things were interesting about that pavilion. Number one, it would have been the first pavilion not dedicated to a single country. Right. So it would have been equatorial Africa. So mm-hmm. a series of countries, you know, Kenya, the Congo, other areas. But what okay. really kind of, you know, you know, 
you, you got to be careful with these concepts that never came to be, right? Because it's it's so wonderful to think about, but it's also so frustrating that man, we didn't we didn't we didn't get them. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get that, so, right? yeah, so many different attractions you you could have gotten there. Been anchored by a large treehouse, uh, you know, uh, 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 an attraction dedicated to the music of of Africa. One that would have oh, simulated wow. a watering hole for different animals. Upwards of three or four different attractions were contemplated, and they were absolutely serious about this. Now, you know, what happened, you know, one of the biggest problems for World Showcase in terms of what they planned versus what happened was, you know, Disney executives thought that funding from those countries would help offset the costs of that area tremendously. As a matter of fact, you know, from a theme park standpoint, when when you kind of got past Walt's vision of, a, of an actual city and they started thinking about, mm-hmm. well, how do we turn this into a theme park? The Imagineers actually considered having World Showcase at the front of the park as opposed to the back because they thought, man, it's going to be so easy to get these countries to provide money. These things are going to look great. And it just did not end up that okay. way. During this time period, you know, Africa had some some political turmoil and and really the only places they were going to be able to get funding from were from South Africa. And due to kind of the political issues and turmoil there, they did not want to mm-hmm. take that step. Yeah. And unfortunately, it, okay. it didn't make it in. Uh, but my personal favorite, if you're asking me what, what is my personal favorite World Showcase Pavilion yeah. that ever came to be, it has to be the Soviet Union Pavilion. And oh, my the, God. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is, is there's concept art out there. This was during the Michael Eisner era. So he was looking to do big things during the Disney decade. And so we have this concept art where literally you would have gotten a recreation of Red Square, with, with St. Basil's Cathedral and the onion domes and these huge brick courtyards oh, okay. and the entire pavilion you know, encircled on a brick fence, I think it would have been absolutely gorgeous. And again, you know, kind of the original concept was every, every pavilion would have had at least one attraction. That was the mindset. And, and those attractions okay. would have focused on the history and the culture of those nations. And, and the Soviet Union Pavilion would have had that as well. Now, just as they were about to get this done, they had actually announced this. You know, this was this this isn't something that we were guessing at. You know, Disney, you know, put this mm-hmm. information out there. Well, the oh, Soviet really? Union wow. fell. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yes, they okay. did. They did. But but before it could actually happen, the Soviet Union fell, and and with that, you know, the 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 momentum behind that project uh, fell as well. Uh, but there are so many others. You know, Israel and and Iran, and and you know both of those obviously you know there are political turmoil issues that you have to worry about from a mm-hmm. company perspective. But it's amazing to think about what that what those things could look like now. And I'm sure both of you here, you know, you, we always get rumors from time to time that oh this pavilion is coming. You know, Spain has been a popular one mm-hmm. that's going to get implemented, or Brazil. You know, mm-hmm. and oh, and so yeah, I, Brazil I think was most recent. Yes. And I'm and I'm hopeful that we will at some point get that. I think the mm-hmm. problem, you know, since the last pavilion that that was added, is that you know these things just cost a lot of money, you know, and mm-hmm. and and I think kind of the hard reality that many people struggle with, including me. I, I I think I love Disney as much as anyone, but I also understand that at the end of the day we're dealing with a corporation, and at the end of the mm-hmm. day that corporation has to make money for its shareholders and. From an investment standpoint, I think they view adding new attractions to other areas of parks as opposed to adding pavilions for World Showcase is more likely to bring in more visitors. Uh, I'm hoping mm-hmm. that we – I think the momentum is actually there. I think if you in, – in, in, the, in the days of intellectual properties, 
Um, if, if they can find an IP fit for a new country, I think that's where we could, we could possibly get it. But I keep my fingers crossed. But, but certainly World Showcase, is, it's probably more so than any other area of Walt Disney World, could have looked so much different if one or two or more of these countries would have actually uh, been built. Um, something else that was never built is Fire Mountain and my personal favorite, Villains Mountain. Uh, I really want to know more about this. Yeah, so w- w- what a fantastic story this is. And and this also, you know, people have strong feelings about Michael Eisner. Uh, you know, a lot of people you know, don't like him. I love him because for, for all of his faults, we would not have the Disney parks as they are there today mm-hmm. without, without yes. him. So, you know, yeah. when I first visited the park, my absolute favorite attraction was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in Fantasyland. You know, you had... These, mm-hmm. these, these huge green submarines that, you know, replicated the 1954 live action film, 20,000 Leagues. Um, and, you, you know, you would go underwater and see all this great, cool stuff. From Disney's perspective, that ride was a nightmare. It took up a huge footprint of Fantasyland, a quarter of the entire land, was a maintenance nightmare. And so in 94, they temporarily closed it. And then you found out a couple of years later that it was going to be permanently closed. So you've got this this huge plot of prime real estate in the Magic Kingdom. So at that point, two different groups of Imagineers started developing two different concepts to replace 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. One focused on something called Fire Mountain. And this would have been that same Jules Verne-esque type theming, essentially a large volcano in which a roller coaster, you know, would would kind of zoom in and out of these, you know, uh, uh, you know, lava flowing all around. It would have been the plans were actually pretty revolutionary because the ride would have started out as your traditional roller coaster, meaning you sit, you know, in the cart and the track is below you. But at some point during the attraction would convert to a hanging coaster where the track is actually above your head. Oh, wow. And, and those amazing. scenes would be where the yeah. lava would be below your feet, right? So really cool, really cool concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other idea was Villains Mountain. Now, as you, you probably know, you know, villains are overwhelmingly popular with, with Disney fans yeah. of all ages, right? It's not, you know, we, yeah. we aren't scared of those villains. We love them. And when they're in the parks, you know, mm-hmm. people, people go crazy. So the idea was let's create a mountain attraction that features these villains. And the mountain itself would have taken inspiration from the 1940 uh, Fantasia film, the Night on Bald Mountain segment, and would have been kind of a celebration of all villains, not just one or two, a log flume-based attraction uh, that I think would have been just just a ton of fun to celebrate those villains. Well, what's crazy is, is that these Imagineering teams could not agree on which idea was better, right? And the executives above them didn't want to make that call, so they take it to Eisner. And what really is just fascinating to think about is at one time, Eisner considered greenlighting both projects, right? Oh, wow. Moving okay. Fire Mountain to Adventureland and then greenlighting Villains Mountain for Fantasyland. So if you just kind of take a step back and think about that. Think about two entirely different mountains added to the Disney mountain range of the Magic Kingdom would have completely changed the landscape and kind of how yeah. people tour those parks. It's really just amazing for me to even think about. Well, obviously, we didn't get either of those, right? So, so yeah. what happened? For, for, for Fire Mountain, 
you know, even back then, like I mentioned, one of the topics in the books that, that I have coming out soon is Disney's use of intellectual properties. You know, these, these, these popular franchises from television and films that are now being added to the parks, you know, very heavily. Uh, you still had this back then. And so the Imagineers wanted to find an IP to tie to Fire Mountain, and they found it in a film called Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Um, okay. You know, it actually had a pretty, a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty star-studded cast. Matthew J. Fox, and they had high hopes yes. for it. And it, it featured adventures, and it featured a volcano, right? So, hey, it's perfect. Yeah. Unfortunately, the film did not perform great, and no. you know, just like that, <laughs> it just, it just kind of fell off the shelf. The villains mountain concept was kind of the opposite, right? Disney knew that villains were, were hugely popular, and so you know, they thought, well, wait a minute, what if we decided to do an entirely separate theme park land to villains or maybe even an entire theme park dedicated to villains okay so if we if we did that then why would we kind of use this marquee attraction in the magic kingdom when we could use that as the marquee attraction to one of these other ideas Mm -hmm. and again you know you know you know frustratingly so we know neither of those things happened Mm -hmm. and with it you know the, the the villains mountain concept doesn't get developed either so you know, at the end of the day, this huge piece of Fantasyland real estate stays vacant for years until the new Fantasyland expansion finally happens. Uh, and so with it, we get, you know, what we have there today with, you know, Seven Dwarves Mine Train and the BR Guest area and, and those things. But, man, just to think that you could have had a huge villain's mountain and a large volcano there in the Magic Kingdom Man, what what a different looking park it would be uh, today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to propose something. They need to build this park. This is this is 100 something <laughs> they need to do. They can put both those mountains in this park because we can we can steal Mount Olympus from Hercules, and then we could use the Olympians as part of it, and it can still have the lava, still have the explosions, but then you also could have Villains Mountain also. So. I think that this is something that needs to happen. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And, and what's funny is, is when you say that, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that my, all of my books have been popular. But the Walt Disney World that never was has been by far the most popular. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason... You know, different Disney fans like different things. Some of us are very detail-oriented, and we like those fun secrets, and some don't. And same thing with Hidden Mickeys. Mm-hmm. I have yet to find a Disney fan who is not fascinated by the concept of what could have been, right? right. The, 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 the ability to play armchair Imagineer, and it's that kind of attitude. Well, what if they did this? And what about that? That's what makes it so fun and so engaging. Yeah. Yeah, and and when you were describing the the Fire Mountain, my mind immediately went to Disney Sea over in Japan with their Journey to the Center of the Earth attraction. It's it sounded yep, that's what I was very too. similar to that. So I think, you know, part of the the unbuilt Disney is interesting because one, yeah, it's kind of well imagine what Magic Kingdom would look like, but then also it's interesting to see like those threads throughout history how they had a good idea, it didn't work out in Magic Kingdom. I imagine they probably borrowed part of that as the basis over it at Disney Sea. I mean, it's Jules Verne and everything. Um, so it, it is just, it's interesting to really like see those strands throughout mm-hmm. the company. Man, that, that is a great point. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, if I, if, if I kind of look back and start looking for kind of overarching themes for, for the Walt Disney World that never was, that's one of them. 
right? And so, you know, if an idea doesn't happen, you know, they don't burn it or throw it away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I view this large shelf in, in, in Imagineering's headquarters where all these different plans and ideas are there, just waiting for someone to come, pick them up, shake them off, you know, give them a little change and implement them somewhere else. Because you see that, right? You see, yes. mm-hmm. see kind of how different parts and components of some of these things didn't happen did later get implemented, even if it's just a subtle nod to 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 the project or the Imagineers that, that worked on it. Yeah, I, I think kind of leading into another one is the uh, Thunder Mesa, where that was a, a grand plan for Frontierland. And I think kind of out of that, you get Big Thunder Mountain, you get Splash Mountain. So maybe can you can you talk about what was the original plan for that area there? Yeah, and that's what I tell you, that's really... You know, you know, if there was a Babe Ruth of 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 theme park ideas that never came to be, it is definitely Thunder Mesa, right? So, you know, if you kind of if you kind of go back and kind of look at what the Disney Company was before Walt Disney World opened, right? It it, it wasn't the the theme park conglomerate genius, you know, experience level that they are today. Right. Back then, they just had Disneyland, which had been a success, but hey, you know, what are we going to make Walt Disney World? And so, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, they wanted to kind of build on the goodwill of all the, the, the stuff they had done at Disneyland, but they all were, also wanted to create enough new things in this new park that would, that would make people justify the experience, the, the journey to, to, to Florida. And so um, one of their massive new ideas was called Thunder Mesa. And some people get a little mixed up. Thunder Mesa was not an attraction in of itself. It was actually an entirely kind of subland of Frontierland. It would have been this massive, you know, plateau mountain landscape that would have included a couple of different attractions. Uh, the most, you know, what they thought was going to be the attraction was something called Western River Expedition. And the simplest way to describe that is a Wild West version of Pirates of the Caribbean. And wow, okay. I just think that's fantastic. Yeah, just that just to amazing. really think about that. It would have also included a mine train type roller coaster, something similar to what we did get with, with Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. But what's fascinating about Thunder Mesa is that the Imagineer principally behind that concept, who's my personal favorite Imagineer, Mark Davis, um, you know, this is a man who, you know, if you want to feel like you, you haven't accomplished much in your life, go read Mark <laughs> Davis's resume, right? I mean, he started out in Disney animation, you know, you know, created, you know, brought Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent and Alice from Alice in Wonderland. You know, essentially every, you know, big female character in animation in those early days, Mark was the animator on that project. He then transitioned over to the Imagineering Department and, hey, helped create Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, (laughs) right? So so this guy knows what he's doing. Well, what, what got me so excited about Thunder Mesa was that the goal that Mark set for himself was to create the greatest theme park experience ever with Thunder Mesa. And that's what he set out to do. No big deal there. Unlike (laughs) a lot of these. Yeah. What's great, though, is is when a guy like that says it, you Mm. know, it's not like me saying it. It's like, well, you know, what have you ever done? I mean, he's done it, right? He's the one guy in the world who can back up that statement. And he poured his heart and soul into this project. And, you know, unfortunately, actually, let let me focus on the positive. You know, we have tons of concept art and tons of information about what this would have looked like, right? I mean, just beautiful drawings from Mark Davis and Mary Blair. Uh, so we really, you know, and I flesh out in the book kind of what these different ride experiences would have actually, you know, been. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it 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 died a slow death, 
right? So <laughs> it was originally planned for the opening day of the Magic Kingdom. As with any construction project, costs just soared, and so they had <laughs> yep. to make some big cuts. Mm-hmm. So Thunder Mesa gets cut initially, but hey, that's okay. The park's going to make a ton of money, and with that, we'll use that to build Thunder Mesa, and that'll make everybody come back to visit uh, again. And I think well, then be, you run into. Sorry, I was just. I think this. Yeah, is go be ahead. Like a, like a four-story building or something. I read somewhere four or six stories. Like it was, yes. it was be massive. Yeah. Oh, huge. I mean, if you think about the footprint, so if you imagine where, you know, the Briar Patch gift shop for Splash Mountain is kind of as you walk up that little okay. hill from the Pecos okay. Bill Tall Inn mm-hmm. and Cafe, from there all the way through the footprint of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, that was going oh, to wow. be, you know, yeah. a, a mountain landscape. Massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, and one of the one of the smaller offerings was going to be, hey, we got a lot of cool stuff at the top. You can get great pictures, you know, from up there. But you know, okay. it would have literally changed the landscape of the entire mm-hmm. of the entire project. But it just so many things happen. You know, you know, political controversies because of some of the depictions of Native Americans in the drawings, and mm-hmm. you know, and just you know, and and at the end of the day, what really sealed its fate was, uh, and there's you know, there's lots of stories behind this, but Big Thunder Mountain Railroad getting the green light right separate and apart from thunder mesa you know you've built that you also built let me back up a minute you know one of the things they did not build for the magic kingdom was pirates of the caribbean Mm -hmm. which was a very interesting choice because it was by far the most popular attraction in disneyland Mm -hmm. but you know they decided to not not build it and when fans and this was really a cultural phenomenon, right? Thanks to the Disney television series, you know, advertising the Pirates attraction. Everybody knew people it. People thought Pirates of the Caribbean. Everybody wanted that experience, and they okay. showed up to Walt Disney World expecting that 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 attraction. Well, when they didn't get it, guests, I mean, the complaints were overwhelming I'll to the point yeah. where they could day one. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, my goodness. It was it was crazy. People, you know, we want the pirates. We want the pirates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Disney greenlit uh, a Pirates of the Caribbean project. Mark Davis had to head that up. He didn't even get to fully flesh it out the way he did in Disneyland. Had to make an abbreviated version. But when you have Pirates of the Caribbean there, and then years later you add Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, mm-hmm. you know what's left. You know, really, that was that was kind of the death knell uh, when when those two projects did get greenlit, and unfortunately, just never came to be. Now, it was promoted heavily for years, marketing materials everywhere, and they never came out and said, "Hey, we're not going to do the project." It just slowly those things went away, okay, and you know, it, it, it just right. vanished vanished into the world of what could have been. But um, but the way we started this conversation. Was was you know I, I really wish Thunder Mesa would have been built, but two of my favorite attractions in the park are Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and Splash Mountain. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if we would have gotten Thunder Mesa, we would have not gotten those attractions at least in the in the form they're in today. Okay. So right. you okay. got to be careful what you wish for because that could have changed <laughs> everything that we did get. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes back to that whole armchair imagineering. If if you get this, well. You know, we don't have this, but if we get this, what are the repercussions? Well, then we don't get these rides, or you know, maybe this didn't happen. And it's it's kind of yeah, it, that that makes it even more interesting. It's that whole trade off of yeah, I love Big Thunder Mountain. I, w- I wanted to see this other thing, but I wouldn't have had this. Yeah, it's kind of like those um, you know, whenever you're you're playing those games of would you rather have hands for feet or feet for hands, like those kind of things, but Disney style. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's idea. it's tough, that. but that that's that's what makes it fun. Yep. <laughs> 
All right, so I want to jump into some like backstories and and secrets as well as from from the park. So um, one thing I think you talk about is Tomorrowland um, and just kind of the whole I think retheming and, and constant retheming that they have with it. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and and, and listen, I, I love Tomorrowland. It's one of my one of my mm-hmm. one of my favorite you know theme park areas. What I did not realize was this was absolutely the most difficult chapter of any book to write that I've ever done. It was, it was, it was maddening because, you know, much more than any other area, it's been redone and changed and has, has had by far the most attractions of any theme park area. Over 40 different attractions have called Tomorrowland home. And so, uh, but, but, but it's really fascinating to think about when the park first opened in 71, you know, I think Tomorrowland was trying to replicate the Tomorrowland of Disneyland, which was, a real world look at what tomorrow could be, right? I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the space age and, and and going to the moon and all these things that were extremely popular at the time. And it also kind of made you think about, well, man, there's there's so much that's just right around the corner, new technology, new experiences that we're gonna get to have. So Tomorrowland looked much different then than it does today. Very cold, very sterile, very, you know, you know, a lot of, you know, cold white and blue colors, sharp edges of the buildings. You know, when you walked into Tomorrowland, you, you may have seen some pictures of this. You had these two large monolithic towers, you know, that, that stood, wow. that mm-hmm. stood guard. Um, on opening day, there were only two attractions. It was, it was uh, the raceway and then the Skyway, right? So neither of which really tied into that. Okay. But a few a few months later, you got a couple of additional attractions, uh, including one called Flight to the Moon. Now, as you can imagine, you know, trying to theme a theme park land to tomorrow is a mm-hmm. is a big challenge. It's kind of, I think, the same problem they've had with Epcot and Future World and kind of why they're getting rid of that, redoing that. Because when you have something geared towards the future, you're basically always behind because mm-hmm. it takes so long to develop this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And it, and, and when it does age, when you do, when you do catch up to it time wise or pass it, it does not look great. Right. I mean, it right, looks, right. it looks really bad and, it, and it's called, you know, Imagineers joked that it should be called yesterday land, right? Because, <laughs> because of what happened. Um, and even, even the attraction I mentioned flight to the moon. So this opened in 71 you know, it was essentially you sat in a circular theater and it simulated a flight to the moon. And and the attraction said this was sometime in the future. Well, we'd already gone to the moon a couple of years before that, right? So even the day that it opened, you know, we were we we were past that. And oh, so geez. you know, what do you do, right? What do you do with that? And and that was a good point you made. That you know, if you look at Future World and Epcot, absolutely same type of problem. Right. I mean, it just, you know, once it just does not age well. And if it's going to work, it requires constant maintenance, constant, constant upkeep and constant change. Well, we get to the 90s. And so finally, and what's fascinating is Tomorrowland is the only theme park land to be completely rethemed under the same banner. Right. I mean, we've had we've had Camp Mini Mickey go away and a new land come in. Right. But this is still Tomorrowland. Right. Yeah. And so they moved away. Yeah, but they moved away from this, you know, future that really is coming to this this science fiction version version of the future, 
right? Okay. So, you know, as viewed through the eyes of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and, you know, in a place where humans and robots and aliens and monsters kind of all live together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this, this you know, it's kind of what you see in comic books and, and, and yeah. science fiction movies and, and, and kind of that fun, zany future that, that, that never was but always will be, right? And so they did that. And, you know, I think it worked much better, right? And so you've got, you know, gentler colors, you've got attractions that more people enjoy. The theming just works better. And from from a cost and maintenance standpoint, you know, you're not having to worry about constantly, you know, keeping up with it. You know, so that's that's really what kind of just man, they 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 had one concept and you had a big Saturn V rocket, you know, that was the anchor mm-hmm. of the of the of the land. Now you've got this kind of the spaceport that's that's right. circled yeah. by planets and moons, so a completely different theming. But even today, you know, the, the, I think Tomorrowland struggles more than any other land in terms of, you know, you know, theming and keeping it, mm-hmm. you know, keeping it des- a desirable place for guests to continue to enjoy. So I'm not sure what will happen with it in the future, you know, or if you know, you know, if they'll they'll do something different. But certainly getting away from that real world look was was the right move. Um, and and I think we're all better off for it. I was I was thinking, I don't I don't know how you would do this, but Wally would fit in really well to that land, but also that's a really depressing kind of <laughs> like like shoehorn <laughs> in there. I'm thinking, oh, what would there be? Like giant trash piles? <laughs> it would be pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it's it's funny, you know, I I may be misstating this, but I think the you know Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger spin was kind of the first, you know, the first IP in Tomorrowland that 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 got in there, but um but you know, you know, we are living in the world of IPs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, very rarely now are you going to see whether it's a theme park land, whether it's a certainly a standalone park if that ever happens, but even an attraction now just from a from a business risk mitigation standpoint, you're probably not going to have a new attraction without an IP, and and people get upset about that and they they complain <laughs> about that. But you know what that does is you know you've got a built in audience for that attraction, right? You know for, for Wall-E, right? You've got fans who know the Wall-E story. You don't have to explain to them what the story is; they already know it, mm-hmm. and so they're walking in kind of more fully informed. There's less risk that that particular attraction will fail. So. You know, I, I, but I think Wally would be a perfect would be a perfect add to Tomorrowland. Yeah, I never really thought about that until you were talking about. It, but yeah, Tomorrowland is now kind of this just hodgepodge yeah. of all these different attractions. I mean, you have Monsters Inc., you have then Space Mountain, you have the Speedway. I mean, Stitch was there for a little bit. Now that's going away. There's, mm-hmm. I know there's been talk of Wreck It Ralph. Like that mm-hmm. would just be kind of out there in there. So yeah, it's just kind of like right. when they don't have a other place for an attraction. I feel like they just kind of throw it over into Tomorrowland. Well, if you adhere to the Pixar theory, a lot of that happens in the future. So you That's can true. kind of, <laughs> kind of go there. Well, even, you know, what's funny is, 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 you know, they did all this theme, this retheming in the nineties. They've peeled a lot of it back for, for reasons I can't explain. You know, the, the people mover narration tied in really well with this spaceport, this, mm-hmm. this romantic future. And they changed that to be more sterile and be more straightforward. So, you know, it's Tomorrowland's an odd place, but uh, but you know, I still make the race to space, so I'm still I'm still a sucker for it. <laughs> so another one that you have some good backstory for is the Picos Built Tall Tale Inn and Cafe. And we actually haven't been there. So I am interested to find out more about the backstory of this ride. Or not ride, but this place. 
And oh, I love this place. Uh, you know, what, what, you know, I think the Pecos Bill Tall Inn and Cafe is a great example of what sets Disney apart from other theme park theme parks out there, mm-hmm. because you've got a restaurant that that previously served you know hamburgers and French fries, and now serves kind of a Tex-Mex style, style menu. In the heart of Frontierland, between two of the most popular attractions in the park, Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. So, from a theming perspective, you could have done absolutely nothing, and people are still going to line up and buy the food, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. you know, why why go to that effort? You know, why go to the effort to do that? But instead, they did the opposite. The, the theming starts with the character of Pecos Bill, and you know, if you go back to 1948. This World War II era, Disney started doing what we call package films, right? So instead of doing full-length feature animation like Cinderella or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, they started kind of patching together smaller segments into package films because they were essentially cheaper to make, right? Mm-hmm. They could get, mm-hmm. get them out cheaper and spend less time. Well, one of those was called Melody Time. And it was divided into several different segments, one of which was about Pecos Bill. Now, this character Pecos, he's, you know, he kind of comes from Texas, you know, folklore or fake lore uh, <laughs> that, you know, he was the rootness, tootness cowboy in the West, you know, did all these amazing things, uh, you know, was an orphan raised by coyotes and, you know, started the gold rush by knocking the teeth out of cattle rustlers and, you know, just, just all these kind of fantastical stories, right. a really fun segment of this, of this package film. Well, for the Pecos Bill Tall Inn and Cafe, and I talk about this in the in the backstory series, some of these backstories you have to piece together through different pieces of evidence on the attraction or the restaurant or wherever it may be. That is not the case with, with, with Pecos Bill. They lay it out for you. And essentially what it says is, is that Pecos decided to open up kind of a watering hole where he could serve up the tastiest eats and treats this side of the Rio Grande, right? So, you know, <laughs> You know, food that was like him, you know, just just big and and popular. Well, his legendary friends would stop by and and visit him and have something to eat. And it became a tradition for them to leave behind a memento for them, right? And so what I think is just fantastic is that the Pecos Bill Tall Telling in it and Cafe is essentially a tall tale hall of fame, right? So what do I mean by that? You know, if you if you just kind of take the time to look up, down, and around, you'll see Paul Bunyan's axe, you know, hanging above a doorway. Okay. And you will see, you know, Slewfoot Sue, who is the love of Pecos Bill's life, you'll see her gloves hanging on a wall, you know, with a note that says, to Pecos, all my love, Slewfoot Sue, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Johnny Appleseed, his tin hat is hanging on the wall. And the mask <laughs> of the Lone Ranger and, uh, you know, John Henry's hammer and, and, and spikes. And literally, you know, there are so many of these that it just breaks my heart when I, when I go to eat and I see people in there and they have no idea. I guess they think just a, a tin pot's hanging on the wall and it's not Johnny yeah, Appleseed's hat. Yeah. yeah, but it's just, it's just so incredibly themed and detailed. Um, and even, I'll say this, even the architecture of the building itself, right, is, is really fantastic because it actually takes up a, a very large footprint in Frontierland. And so if you're walking to the Pecos Bill Cafe kind of from the Haunted Mansion from Liberty Square, the first area you see is a, is a saloon-type facade, right? It's, it's blue plank. And then you kind of go around the corner and it turns into kind of a town hall, you know, uh, exterior. Mm-hmm. Well, as you circle around to, to Adventureland – 
it becomes more of a Mexican style hacienda with this Pueblo style walls and clay tile roof, which blends into the Caribbean Plaza section of Adventureland that's uh-huh. right next door. So even the exterior of the building kind of tells the story of progression from east to west, this westward expansion, and helps convey that story. So wow. it's literally, I mean, I, you know, just, just look on the walls when you go in there. It's, you know, it's got the code of the West, right? So, you know, respect the land, defend the defenseless, and don't ever spit in front of women and children, right? I mean, <laughs> if, 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 if you don't love that, then I, I just don't think we can be friends. It's amazing. I mean, it just goes to show you... I mean, the, the detail and the backstories mm-hmm. the Imagineers put into all this stuff. I mean, like you said, a, a lot of the attractions and, and restaurants and things, it's not as obvious, but it's always there. Like, they, they always have some sort of story. Now, whereas this one, it's it's very obvious. But but they just they do an incredible job because I, I feel like they start kind of with that backstory right. and history and then build from there. So it it's all, it seems grounded in reality. Well, yeah, I was going to say, and, and I mean, that adds a certain legitimacy to it because if it wasn't, they didn't do that, then it would kind of seem random, but they have a driving force behind everything that they do. And so they can make choices like decorating choices and character choices and everything that really just add to that theme. Yeah, without a doubt. And I'll give you another good example. It's another restaurant, the Liberty Tree Tavern. Um, you know, one of my favorite places to go, you know, I love Thanksgiving dinner and you can go there and have it, have it 365 (laughs) days a year. You know, most people think correctly so that the restaurant is themed as just colonial tavern, and it and it absolutely is. But what many of them miss is that each of the dining rooms in that restaurant are themed to a different colonial leader, right? And so if you look on the walls and look on the shelves when you're in there, you know there, there's a room dedicated to Paul Revere, and it is very rustic, representing his 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 job as a silversmith, and a large cupboard filled with silver, you know, cups and spoons and different things that pay homage to to Paul Revere. Another is a Betsy Ross room where you'll literally see a flag that's hanging on the wall, symbolizing the flag that she helped create. And others, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, where you'll see a, a kite and some some other instruments. But uh, that's one of those that literally, you know, people have no idea that man, this particular room I'm sitting in is dedicated to a colonial leader. And if I just took the time to look up and see what these pictures are and see what these different mementos are that are displayed, man, it just, you know, it's just, it's just, it just makes the experience that much more fun. One very popular attraction amongst a lot of Disney fans is the Haunted Mansion. So can you tell us a little bit about, and I know the Haunted Mansion has incredible backstories and there's always theories. So mm-hmm. what are some of those kind of interesting backstories about the Haunted Mansion? I think you have something on the, the attic scene um, specifically. Yes. And, and listen, you know, if I'm probably for all of us, if we're making a list of our top five attractions, I mean, Haunted Mansion has got to be number one or at least, you know, top three mm-hmm. or four. Right. And mm-hmm. and the reason for that is, is it, it is it's just it's just timeless. It it works as well today as it did back in 1971 when it first opened. And literally from the minute you first see the mansion itself to the minute you you get off the ride and, and walk through the exit path. So many fun details and the queue and the exit path. And it's just, you know, you could, you know, I, I had to just stop at some point because the chapter had gotten to be so long with so many of these different details. <laughs> but you could, you know, there, you know, literally there, you know, there are books about the Haunted Mansion. But the attic scene in particular is one that I just really enjoy and really love. And the reason I like it so much is it's packed full of detail, but so many people miss it, miss what's there. And they miss it for a couple of different reasons. You know, number one, 
you're just leaving the grand ballroom, right? Mm-hmm. One of the most, yeah. you know, jaw-dropping scenes of any attraction. And the scene itself is very dark, right? You have to really look hard to try to dissect and find these details. Uh, but really, the story there, it's a sub-story that's captured just in the attic, separate and apart from the Haunted Mansion itself. And it's about Constance Hatchaway, this this bride. And so if you look to the left and the right as you're going through that through that room, you'll see different, you know, a lot of people see the portraits, right, of Constance and a mm-hmm. husband whose head appears and disappears, right? So right. Mm-hmm. they, which is, you know, which is, which is fantastic. But uh, what they don't notice is all the stuff that's around each of those pictures, right? And so what's there are different depictions of these husbands that she has married. And what you will notice if you start paying attention to the details is each husband gets wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. She's she's moving up, you know, okay. the, the 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 economic ladder. Yep. The first husband is is a is a is a farmer, right? And so he wears a nice but but not you know overly decadent suit. And you'll see the different gifts, wedding gifts that are surrounding them are are nice but modest. Uh, and the hat he wears is a is a bowler hat, so nice but not over the top. Well, you go to the next husband who is actually a banker, so. All these things are a little nicer. And the next husband is a military leader, and things are a little nicer. And then you finally get to the last husband, and you have gifts like harps, and even the frames that that, that hold the wedding pictures are, are, are more ornate, right? Mm-hmm. Two details that are two of my favorites of any Walt Disney World attraction. Number one, if you notice Constance's neck, with each husband, she adds another string of pearls, so she starts with one string from the first husband, and then a second, and then a third, and by the time you get to the end, you know there's a lot of pearls. But <laughs> my most favorite, and it's one unfortunately that many miss because, as as you probably know, when you get to the end of that scene, you see this very convincing Constance projection there, right, mm-hmm. saying these right. things like, you know, you know, till death do us part, and mm-hmm. and sickness and wealth, you know, you know, which is fantastic. <laughs> but if yeah. you look to the right, you will see a hat rack, right. So each of these husbands who lost their head are all wearing a distinctive hat. If you look at the coat rack, it holds all of those hats, you know, at the end of the day. So all the husbands (laughs) lost their heads and the hats are still there on the coat rack, which I think, man, it's just fantastic. Uh, But just a, a, a great scene. It was maddening to try to write about because again, it's very dark in there. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm taking, I've, I've, I don't even know how many times I've written it, but taking pictures, adding <laughs> light, you know, watching other videos that others have done, taking flash fo- photos I'm not supposed to, and hoping I don't get kicked yeah. out, you know? So it was, <laughs> it was great to kind of, to kind of dig into that. But again, a part of the haunted mansion that I think people see and enjoy because they see the disappearing heads and they see Constance, but they, they miss on the fact that, hey, there's an actual story here above and beyond what, what we can glean from those from those couple of props. I, that's actually really interesting. It makes me think of uh, like Game of Thrones where they would put the heads on a spike. It's like the very innocuous <laughs> version of the heads on a spike. <laughs> yes. And what was funny is, is it, what was great is, is, is the fact that they took the time. Again, it's like, you know, if you're imagining you're working on a project, you know, I think at other theme parks, uh, it can be, all right, well, what do we need to do to get a good effect here? All right, we got a good effect. Let's move on. But the hats, are you kidding me? Like, we're going to make <laughs> sure each of these husbands have different hats, and then we're going to mm-hmm. hang them on a, on a hat rack at the end. I mean, it's, it's that kind of attention to detail and things that 90, maybe more percent 
of guests we'll never notice, we'll never see, but it's there. It's there because they want it to be there because they care about storytelling. And, you know, they know that there are nuts out there like me who who (laughs) try to dig into this and find as many of these as they can. I'm sure that the Imagineers that thought of that too are like, whenever you wrote about it, they were like, yes, somebody gets it. (laughs) I'm understood. (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, the Haunted Mansion was really, um, it was a labor of love because as you can imagine, it took a long time to really, even, you know, they, they, they added this new interactive queue several years ago. Uh, and so you got all these additional details in addition to these tombstones that were there, but even the tombstones, right. You know, so, you know, mm-hmm. you know, dear departed Mark, you know, well, you know, a lot of people don't know that, Hey, that's Mark Davis, the Imagineer we talked about earlier. You know, you're, okay. you're paying homage to these mm-hmm. different Imagineers who paid a part in the project. So part of the, the haunted mansion chapter is listing out all these tombstones, what they say, and then who the Imagineers are that work on this project they're paying homage to. Yeah. I, I'll have to admit, I, I didn't, ever realize all the <laughs> no, hats everything that you mentioned but, no. but now that you said that like i can't wait to ride it I, again i was gonna say i out. think i need we need to go back we need to read we need to read that chapter again and then we also need to buy some of those books that just have to do with the haunted mansion because that is that is a deep read that yes. I can definitely appreciate and uh would love to you know know more about yeah and it's and it's fun you know listen you know you know some people love it some people don't but again just just if you're paying attention to the gifts right if you're getting a wedding gift well, if you're at the top of the you know socioeconomic ladder, the gifts you're going to be getting at your wedding are going to be a different type of gift than if you did if you're a simple yeah. farmer. And you yeah, see that absurd. you see that in yep. those gifts as they as they as they as they move along. And again, just just great storytelling. Yeah, no, that, that's that yes. is all amazing. Um, so we'll get you out of here on a couple maybe rapid fire questions here. So one thing I, w- I want to know: what is the most interesting thing you learned so far in researching all of your books? Man, that is a that is a tough question. I'll give you I'll give you a, just a quick answer, right? So so Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, you know, one of the most popular attractions in the park. Uh, we've all ridden it probably a lot of times. And before I started researching on kind of backstories, you know, for, for a book, I thought, hey, this is a pretty easy story, right? I mean, you're you're following these different pirates sacking, you know, a Caribbean town. You know, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it is what it is. What I didn't realize. And most people don't realize is that it's actually a morality tale, right? And it's a tale of what happens to pirates who do those kind of things. And so, you know, when you start going through the attraction, kind of the first real scene that you see is a is a beach to the left where you've got all these different skeletons, right? Pirate mm-hmm. skeletons there. And then you pass this 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 cursed pirate skeleton who's at the helm of a ship before you go downhill. Well, that's actually the end of the story, right? They're showing okay. you what happens to these pirates. And then when you go down the hill, you're going back in time to see kind of the fate okay. that led them to being doomed. I was like, wait a minute. It actually makes sense now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I will admit it gets a little complicated since they added the pirates movies characters to the story now. Yeah. So, okay. you know, it's right. still, you know, it's still funny, but, but we know from kind of imaginary interviews and books that have been put out that that's the case. What you see on that lagoon, what you see on that, on that beach is the end of the story, and then you go back in time to see what led them to that fate, which you know again was 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 I thought you know pretty darn cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't think anybody would ever. Yeah, the know time that. travel element is something that it's just like mind blowing. There, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, I like to ask all of our guests this: What is your favorite Disney character, or who? I guess would be the proper phrasing there. Oh man. 
that's you know first of all that's that's unfair because that's like asking <laughs> me who my favorite child is uh, and depending upon the and depending upon the day that you ask me it can be it can be a different answer i'll give you one and and it's it's this is a throwback right this is a throwback to the 1950s absolutely davy crockett you know oh, I, wow, I, yeah. I introduced my kids to this character people forget how overwhelmingly popular, you know, forget, or like, you know, like me and us, we weren't born at the time. But <laughs> Davy Crockett was a cultural phenomenon and a huge hit. And it was really the reason why you had a frontier land in the mm-hmm, original yeah. Disneyland Park was how popular it was. And so I forced my children to watch on 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 Disney Plus some of the old Davy Crockett shows with with Fess Parker and Buddy Epson as Georgie Russell. And they enjoyed it. Maybe they were just humoring me, but they loved it. But there's something about that 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 classic, that innocent Disney era, right? You know, I don't know if you've seen the film Summer Magic or you know Pollyanna or you know you know you know films like that. That I I think Davy Crockett does that. It's that simpler, more innocent time that for a lot of us, it's like Main Street USA. You know, that's what we like to remember the past being, even if it wasn't really the past, right? Yeah. It's right. just that that romanticism that I really enjoy. All right, what is your favorite park? Oh, easy. Without a doubt, Magic Kingdom. I mean, there's it always has been, always will be. Uh, my wife's favorite park is the Animal Kingdom. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and and I, and I and I enjoy Epcot and I, you know, the Disney Studios with all the changes that you know, that's the hot place to be now, right? right with right. all these these major rides. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's always the Magic Kingdom just because when you step inside the park, when you make that turn and and you see Cinderella Castle sitting at the end of Main Street USA, you know, again, I'm 43 now, but there's something about that feeling mm-hmm. and that sight that really makes you a kid again, right? For all of us who are kids at heart, no matter what stress you're dealing with at work, no matter what be, may be going on outside the walls of that park, when you turn that corner and you see that castle, you feel like everything's going to be okay. It, it makes you giddy. It does. It does. And it's, and it's, you know, one of the, you know, I love, you know, we always make a scene when we, when we do it and we do it you know, a few times a year. <laughs> But I love to watch families who are walking in who have clearly, this is their first trip to Walt Disney World. And to see the looks on the children's faces, to see the looks on the adults' face, you know, it's just, you know, it's really, what that does for me and what really what the Magic Kingdom does, I think, better than any other park, it shows that, you know, these these theme parks are more than just bricks and mortar they're more than you know hamburgers and hot dogs and roller coasters and shows. Mm-hmm. They're it's truly a magical place where where dreams can come true, right? And I think yeah. that's why we all love it, and and that's why it's special for 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 all of us in so many different ways. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, I know the the books are available on Amazon. If our listeners um, want to find out more, are you on social media or a website or anything they could go to as well. Yes, absolutely. You can, like you said, all my books are available on Amazon, uh, my website, chrissmithbooks.com. You can find out more about those books and more about me. Um, and then on social media, probably the best place is Twitter, and that's C. Smith Disney. Um, if you like old Disney photos, uh, like old construction photos of, of the parks, and then fun details. I love throwing up fun little things like like those hats and like, you know, you know what does this box mean and what does it say? Um, it's, I think I'm a pretty fun follow. Okay. Nice. No, that sounds great. Yeah, now, awesome. And then did I hear you correctly? Are you working on another book? Is there another one coming out soon or? Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of that. So, um, uh, you know, we're heading up, you know, next, this time next year we'll be kind of at the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. obviously a, a huge, 
a huge event. I actually just got booked. You know, uh, I, I told my my guy who helps me do my reservations, I'm like, listen, as soon as October the first reservations are available, you want in, brother? You get you, you I got to be there. You got to get me in, and he did. <laughs> But uh, so so what I did is is I as I've as I've I've finished a book um, about you know just celebrating Disney over 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 fifty years. It's called a magical half century, and what I do is I look at just a bunch of fun random topics about the Disney company. And a couple of examples are kind of the history of alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, mm, you know, okay. obviously for a long time, you couldn't get real alcohol, but, you know, there was there was alcohol hidden in plain sight, you know, obviously <laughs> rum and Pirates of the Caribbean, but other areas where alcohol was referenced. Um, I do a, a really, probably the chapter that I'm most proud of is on intellectual properties because Everybody asks me about that, and it's an extremely hot topic right now in terms of are they focusing too much on IPs or not. So I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna do a historical dive. I want to look at the history of the parks from the time they opened in '71 and different points along that that line and see how IPs were used. And the results are pretty surprising, and okay. and it has ebbed and flowed for years. And uh, IPs are not a new thing, but it's just you know great fun to kind of take a look at that, and a lot of other fun you know reminiscent of my other books, fun details and attraction walkthroughs and things like that, and it should be out in the next next couple of weeks. Uh, it's been a a a another labor of love uh, as it always does. It takes me much longer to finish a project than I think it will, just because you know <laughs> I, I'm I'm fortunate in that. You know, I, I don't write books to make money. And anybody who writes Disney books, even successful ones like I think mine have been, you know, if you're expecting to get rich doing that, you're you're in the wrong you're in the wrong deal. Uh, you know, I, I have my, my day job as an attorney, so I write these books because I love them and I care mm, about yeah. them. And and I refuse to let one go out the door until I feel like it's ready and it and it adds something new. Um, and I hope and I feel that this new book will be like the others and 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 meet that meet that standard. Well, it sounds great. I mean, looking yeah. forward to reading it. So I, yes. it sounds like it'll be another great read. So uh, Chris, thanks again. This this was an absolute pl- pleasure. I think this was uh, great having you on and really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Oh, happy to do it. Thank you for giving me the chance to, to talk Disney. I always, always jump at those <laughs> opportunities. All right. I want to thank Chris again. We will put links to all of his books in the description. And his new book is actually out now. It's called Magical Half Century, Stories Celebrating Walt Disney World's first 50 years. Again, Chris was just a wealth of knowledge uh, and really appreciated having him on. And I aspire to become a Disney historian myself. That's an awesome career uh, to have. That's like one of those things like whenever you think about, oh, people actually design toys. Wow. Why did I not realize that that was a career path that I could have taken? Um, Disney historian, I think, is up there with that as well. It's a good thing to have on a business card. Pretty cool business card to drop down, definitely. So I want to thank everybody again for listening. As always, uh, leave us a rating or a review. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for lending us your ears. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you here next Monday. Bye-bye.